1: Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept
0: PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here, Here we go.
1: go. Okay, moving on to tears. It's kind of its own topic because there was a lot of questions about mm. tears that came through, which I totally understand. I guess it's one of um, people's greatest fears going into um to having a baby and then probably one of the things that they very much remember after having a baby um and one of the most commonly asked questions was if you tear in your first delivery um what is the likelihood that you are to tear again
2: yeah yeah so um as I said before tearing is one of the very common questions in antenatal classes and episiotomies and tearing so I'm I'm just referring to vaginal birth here as a broad spectrum of pushing the baby out vaginally without any instrumental help, whether you have an epidural or not, whether you have a forceps or a vacuum delivery, whether the baby's head first or breech, whether it's a multiple pregnancy or a singleton pregnancy. It's a baby coming out through the vagina. And with a first baby, it is highly likely that you would need some form of suturing, whether that be anything from a very big tear to the smallest tear or a very big episiotomy to a tiny episiotomy.
0: Is there, so it's,
2: it's very unlikely, or not very, it, it, it's highly likely that you will need some stitches. However, in subsequent pregnancies, the rate of needing stitches, regardless of whether you needed stitches the first time, does go down as a percentage will go down and also if you need stitches the second time it's likely that it will be a far less significant tear That needs to be sutured Mm -hmm. the other thing to remember is that not all of the pain that you're feeling in that region is due to the episiotomy or tear there is pain have a look in the cot at your baby (laughs) that baby came through your pelvis (laughs) and through your vagina and all right at the vaginal introitus where the cut or tear occurred that was like simply an exit wound. The wound goes right back into the pelvis and the bruising of the pelvis. So with a second or subsequent baby, of course there's less bruising and less trauma to the pelvis because it has previously had a baby pass through it. So most women having a second or more baby will be less uncomfortable, not only because they've had less stitches, but also because it's less trauma to the pelvis. And I will say there are some things that you can't help, like if you needed a forceps or a vacuum delivery, you're probably more likely to need stitches. If the baby's in a bad position, then clearly you're more likely to have stitches. And the one bit of advice that I would give people in terms of preventing needing stitches is if you can listen, even though you may be in that second stage in a very distressed state and feel a little bit out of control, but if you can somehow just listen while you're pushing when you're told to push and when you're told not to push, Mm. it can help just stretch that perineum so that, instead of having just a rapid expulsive push which will tear the vagina ahead of it, there's a controlled distension, which will allow the skin to maximise its elasticity and for the baby to get out with the minimum amount of damage, even if it is some stitching with the minimum amount of damage. Yeah.
0: So with an episiotomy, um, you can have, it's not like a standard size from, I thought it was a standard size from your vagina to close to your side of your um, butthole. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, we do cut an episiotomy on quite a specific angle to avoid the anal sphincter. Because that's the
1: main reason you're doing it right to avoid tearing from the vagina to the For anus. My
0: girlfriend has a tiny episiotomy, and mine was much larger. And then I thought, well, you didn't have an episiotomy because it doesn't look that big.
2: Yeah, so so a, a lot of you see, it's maybe important you just to got a this- bigger vagina. <laughs> It's important, uh, it's important to understand that there's a difference between the word elasticity and stretchiness. Elasticity suggests that something stretches and then goes back to the way it was before, whereas stretchiness is like when you blow up a balloon and then you let it down and it doesn't look anything like it did before you blew it up the first time. So if people have very good quality elastic skin they will tend to be much less likely to need stitches because it stretches and then goes back and minimal damage has been done. Whereas other people have very poor stretchiness to their skin and very poor elasticity. So there is a lot of damage done. And that's sort of just really in your DNA, whether you're not, whether you're a person with good tissues that stretch up well. But one thing that makes me laugh is when you hear arguments about whether it's better to tear or better to have an episiotomy, the overwhelming majority of those either papers or or articles or, or lectures are given by people who quite simply have never sewn up either they've never sewn up an episiotomy they've never sewn up a tear so how could they possibly proclaim to be experts on the damage that's done and the repercussion of those of, of that damage so I don't just see people for their pregnancy and birth. I see them at their six week checkup, and if they've had stitches, I check those stitches. But I'm also seeing women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right up to their 90s, and looking at the consequences of their vaginal births down the many decades that follow. And so, for someone to say they have a better understanding than me about the repercussions of vaginal birth and the repercussions of the way a vagina is repaired, I find a little bit, not That's insulting, crazy. I just find it a bit silly yeah. because, um, because when somebody who knows the anatomy and knows what they're doing, sutures up an episiotomy, which is a nice, clean, straight incision where the edges of the tissues will come back together together you know, as close as possible to the way they were before. Mm. It, 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 it baffles me that anyone could think that it's better to tear straight down towards your anal sphincter where, you know, really significant mm. damage can be done. And, and it's not clean
1: and it's not like it's not yeah. clean lines. And it's And not. you
2: can't compare anecdotes like, oh, my friend had a tear and she didn't have any pain and I had an episiotomy and it hurt. Because as I said, some of the pain isn't f- even from the episiotomy, mm. and ever- but also, it, it, what is
1: a tear? Like a tear can go from something. Absolutely. I mean, I had two stitches. I would say yeah. I had the most very very minor tear. I I would say actually the bruising sensation that you're describing from. Poppy's head coming out of my vagina mm. <laughs> was worse than yeah. the pain from oh, I've the seen stitches. Her head. Yeah, she was under surveillance mm. for her head. It was so it's so big. Really? Yeah, yeah I've ha- come from a family of big, big headed heads. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, like, like,
2: and so you like, don't know, that's you don't know how hard it was to find this hat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
2: to shit on my <laughs>
1: <laughs> Um But yeah, so to to even class me, I think in. The same.
2: Clearly it's better to have a small tear than have an episiotomy. No one's arguing that point. But I'll tell you what, if we were to list all the variables, the bottom of the list variable is a bad tear. Yeah. Yeah. So that that, that sums it up perfectly. Mm.
0: And someone has asked the general recovery from an episiotomy if there are any long-term changes um i what we were saying before i don't it it didn't have any effect on me after birth that wasn't a problem didn't hurt there was no like oh my god this is horrible Mm. nothing it was more the swelling of giving birth so um yeah
2: the episiotomy is just the very very end of the vagina so when we're talking about childbirth's effect on your anatomy, we're talking about the whole pelvic floor. We're talking about the neck of the bladder, the vagina, the perineum, the effect in the future of the likelihood of prolapse, bladder problems, bowel problems, intercourse problems. Um, Why the fuck do we
1: have children? (laughs) And
2: so in order to compare (laughs) vaginal birth or episiotomies. It it, it Mm. astounds me constantly how we never take everything into account. We only take into account the things we want to hear or the things we want to talk about and then compare the very best of one group with the very worst of another Mm. group and say that's a valid comparison. And, And one of the things that getting older as an obstetrician does to you is it means You've seen things much further down the stream and realize, you know, what are the long-term consequences? But to answer that question, which is a good question, you'll be given advice in hospital about your episiotomy, and you know, ice, ice and more ice, ice is a ice fantastic baby. <inaudible> and um Anti-inflammatories are good rather than Panadol. You know, try something like Nurofen because that has an anti-inflammatory effect. Okay. Salt baths are great because they will help um, stop an episiotomy getting infected. Although that is a rare complication, and of course to have it checked at your six-week checkup. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of women who have early-on problems with their episiotomy do not have problems with them down the track.
1: Yeah. Um, There were a couple of... Oh, just one more with tearing. Um, Does a water birth reduce your risk of tearing?
2: Oh, absolutely not. Because as I said before, um, the risk of tearing, and as I said, the one bit of advice I'd give you would be to be really controlled in that mm. second stage when the head's on the perineum. So when you're in a water birth, whether you're in a bath or some sort of um, pool arrangement, the ability of the midwife or obstetrician or whoever's looking after you um, to keep an eye on the perineum and to encourage pushing when appropriately and stop pushing when appropriately and, um, and going back to, yes, you do poo during labour, so that's now in the water creating somewhat murky water to observe the perineum, it, 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 it is not an ideal circumstance for avoiding tearing.
1: And um, d- do, you f- do you feel that um, epidurals increase the risk of tearing?
2: No. No. There, it is true that an epidural increases the likelihood of needing an instrumental delivery. Okay, so that, by instrumental I mean forceps or vacuum. That I can't deny that as a statistical fact. Um, however, particularly if it's not your first baby, the overwhelming majority of people can successfully push a baby out if they're properly encouraged and shown yeah. where to push and put in the right position and push a baby out without instruments. I guess one thing I would say to people is, um, you could argue that the epidural increases the chances of needing a forceps or a vacuum, but if you turn the argument round the other way and say, if you're going to need an epidur- a, 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 if you're going to need a vacuum delivery or a forceps delivery, Would you be happy to have an epidural on board already? (laughs) The answer to that is, (laughs) yeah, baby. (laughs) So, um, yes, it it does increase the chance of needing stitches, but I did clarify right from the start the chances of needing stitches with a vaginal birth are very high.
1: Mm. Um, We're on to caesareans. There was actually not that many questions that came through about caesareans, which I was... Surprised. Obviously, the whole world
0: knows all about it, yeah. so we don't need to talk about it. But there was a few, and um, the one we pulled out was pain after a C section. How long is normal?
2: Yeah, well, what I'd like to say to that is I see all my patients for a six week checkup. And if you were in my rooms at the time that a number of women were coming for their six week checkup, I would say that you would struggle to know which of them had had a cesarean and which had had a vaginal birth. Um, I think that the recovery from a caesarean section has been grossly overstated and the recovery from a vaginal birth has been grossly understated wow. such that the actual reality is the two are much closer together in the middle. I'm not proposing cesarean births for that reason I'm not saying you should have a cesarean uh, my own family have had normal births and I'm all for it and I would like to try and help my patients have vaginal births however I don't accept this argument that there is a massive difference between the recoveries it's not true um and 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 I'm I'm sorry to be saying something that's not what people want to hear but oh, it is just fine. not true
0: and with um, a caesarean, I haven't had one, but I've had my appendix out and that was horrific after, like, having to sit up. Is is that the same thing for a caesarean that you would have a similar pain where you're having to struggle to sit up or is it a different area? I just yeah. feel that...
2: Well, I guess it's true to say that the pain has moved about six to eight inches from your perineum to the lower part of your abdomen. So women who've had a vaginal birth may have trouble sitting, whereas women who've had a caesarean may have trouble sitting up. Okay. Um, we, do, um, we do put a lot of thought uh, into correct analgesia and as most caesareans nowadays are done under a spinal anaesthetic, that gives you know four or five hours of very thorough pain relief after the procedure. But at the hospital I work at, elective cesarean sections are done in the morning, and all my patients who have a cesarean in the morning are up that afternoon, have had a shower in the afternoon, Incredible. are sitting out of bed and feeding their baby, and uh, this is if they want to. Mm. Um, and no, you got a whip, and um, and 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 are able to sit up. Um, quite quickly. And, um, you you know, it's not six weeks until you can drive, and it's not six weeks till you can lift things and go for walks with your baby. It's just what you feel comfortable with. And I, I would argue that there are many women out there who've had a vaginal birth recently who would be less safe to drive a car because of how uncomfortable they are where they're sitting than women who've had caesareans. that's so
1: interesting.
2: I don't don't want to make this like I'm plugging caesareans. I'm just sticking up for them in Mm. the sense that I feel that they are unfairly maligned.
1: Mm. And what are, um, oh, sorry, there's one more about caesareans, but would you recommend a caesarean in someone who had, or has a prolapse and someone who had a prolonged pushing stage in their previous delivery.
2: It's true to say, and, and there is a specialty of obstetrics and gynaecology called urogynecology, and I think most of the people who do that would agree that most of the damage to the perineum and pelvic floor is done with the first delivery. So if you have successfully delivered a baby vaginally and haven't had to have, like, a repair operation or a bladder operation afterwards, then unless you're psychologically traumatised by that birth, I think it's perfectly okay to have another vaginal birth. The one situation would be where if it was an incredibly difficult vaginal birth Mm. and and the one that comes to mind is where there's a, a... an emergency called shoulder dystocia where the head is delivered but then it's extremely difficult to get the shoulders out and sometimes the baby might be might be damaged as a result of that the recurrence rate of shoulder dystocia is quite high and therefore I would say that in that's the sort of case where somebody might be recommended a caesarean in their next birth. Yeah. But in my own experience, the commonest reason that a woman would request a caesarean after a vaginal birth, because remember, some don't have a choice. They have mm. a placenta previa in their second yep. pregnancy or they, have, um, or they have a breach in their second pregnancy and have a caesarean. But in women who choose to have a caesarean having had a vaginal birth, it's usually because of psychological reasons following their first birth and they don't wish to go down that path again.
0: It's really funny you say that because my last birth I had a... I was really low in hemoglobin. 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 I say hemoglobin. Hemoglobin Mm. levels. And I was to the point where my levels were below 70 and I couldn't lift my my head
1: off the. the, the I'm glad
0: you find that horrendous (laughs) because it was. Anyway, um, long story short, I am not having another one anymore, mainly because of that, but I am so petrified about that birth process and what happened after that if i did fall pregnant i would really opt for a cesarean and that's after three
1: mm. natural i was going to say that's such a shame because i feel like by your third you deserve to be having quite an easy i
0: had an easy second i just didn't have an easy yeah. third and, yeah. and that just, yeah, it was a sad ending, but, well, it's not sad. She's, she's I, great,
2: but. I think on one hand I'd say to you, look, you've gone through the hard yards of delivering three babies vaginally and in all likelihood a fourth delivery, you know, I would hope would be straightforward for you. However, I would also say to any woman who either wanted or indeed needed a caesarean section in that fourth birth, don't be afraid mm. because that I, I see these ladies, I do their delivery and they come back and see me and say, I, I don't understand what the fuss is about. It mm. was fine. Mm. I've made a great mm. recovery. I'm happy. Yeah. And, um, and and I would reassure people that despite all this negative feedback they're getting, they're highly likely to be happy.
1: Mm. You bringing up being anemic and having iron deficiency reminded me of the other day, um, Jade, in what? That, no, can I say about the washing, Jade, yeah. towards the end of her pregnancy was iron deficient and she had cravings to um, chew on her freshly washed, still wet clothing. Mm. And I was actually talking to dad about this the other night yeah. and he said it's very common in pregnancy, often when people are deficient in certain things, for them to crave eating wow. really, really weird things like dirt, dirt. Or paper, or yeah. So there you go. You're and my, not... you
0: were giving me crap, and my family was like, "Why is she hanging over the washing machine? <laughs> Why does she love laundry?" And I, could, so I would sit much. on the couch and chew a face washer, and it was like mm.
1: heaven. Orgasm. It yeah. was.
0: And now that when I had her, and my levels were balanced, now I'm like,
1: you hate laundry day again. <laughs> I hate
0: laundry days. Just it's piling cold, up it's in the bathroom.
2: Pika, uh, when people want to eat. Sort of non edible things. Wow. Quite often, patients say to me that uh, they didn't pay their bill because they ate it. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm happy with that excuse.
1: <laughs> the kids are going to school and they going, The dog didn't eat my homework. Mum did. Yes. Yes. the crazy pregnant yes. mum. <laughs> mum ate it. Um, okay, so there were quite a lot of questions about VBACs or trial of scar or trial of labour or whatever we want to call it. Um, what are your thoughts? We'll just call them VBACs because most and just of the people refresh people on yeah. what that means. vaginal birth after yep. cesarean. Most people who sent in questions that's what they called it so let's just try and call it that um so what are your thoughts on VBACs
2: okay so this is a a very very hot topic of conversation whenever you go to obstetric meetings and obstetric uh, forums and and when we go to uh, meet uh, you know uh, uh, statistical meetings at hospitals and talking about VBAC so it's something that we all talk about a lot I'll preface everything I say about VBACs by saying having a vaginal birth after a caesarean is a perfectly legitimate medical thing to be allowed to do. So somebody who says, yes, I'm happy for you to have a VBAC isn't doing something that would be considered by the, by the medical fraternity as a, a ridiculous risk. However, there are risks associated with a labour after a caesarean, there is no doubt about that. And for risk-averse people, they, they would often choose not to have a vaginal birth after a caesarean. I would like to say, in defence of everything I've been saying so far, that the commonest reason women come to me in their second pregnancy who've had a caesarean in their first and they don't want a VBAC, they want another caesarean, isn't because of risk, isn't because of danger. It's because they were perfectly happy with the recovery they made from their first birth, perfectly happy with the experience they had and were just happy to have another caesarean and therefore avoid the risk of having a scar on their tummy from their first caesarean and a scar in their vagina yeah. from their second birth. But, look, you know, I, I certainly would say that if you would... If you want to have a VBAC, you must very carefully choose where you have the baby. You must be aware that issues could come up in the pregnancy that would make the VBAC no longer an option. And you would have to very carefully listen to what advice you're given about the actual management of the labour on the day with regard to monitoring of the baby, monitoring of progress, and access to emergency caesarean section if it's needed. Why? And I, I would also be very wary of seeing doctors who have a reputation for letting people do what they want to do because there's a name for that. It's called marketing. Mm. They're doctors who want you to come and see them because that's how they market themselves. I don't think uh, obstetrics, you need to market yourself other than just being a properly trained, sensible obstetrician who cares about the mother and the baby and who wants their patients to have safe outcomes and is good at communication. So that when it comes to talking about VBAC, it's not, oh, this doctor will let me do a VBAC. It's this doctor will explain the VBAC to me I'll understand the pros and cons, and I'll understand if I've decided to have a VBAC when I need to abandon that path and have a caesarean.
0: Why Why does it interfere, interfere with the option of having a VBAC? Why? What's...
2: Yeah, so when you've had a previous caesarean section, there is a scar on the uterus, which is a weakness on the uterus, even though the uterus has been sewn back together and has... Um, and as there is a scar on the uterus during labour, when the uterus is contracting and that scar is down towards the bottom of the uterus, which is the thinnest part of the uterus, there is a risk that that scar will open. So that's called a dehiscence. Now, whilst the risk of that is small, it's only about one in 200, the risk of bad consequences from that happening are high so let me make that clear it's a small risk of a big problem not a likely risk of a really small treatable problem Mm. so if you're that woman that it happens to there's a very high risk that your baby could be damaged or die and there's a very high risk to the mother particularly of needing a hysterectomy And when I'm talking about the risk of it happening, I'm not talking like an episode of RPA where they recognise it's happening and they whisk the woman off to treatment and it's all happy in the end. What I'm saying is there's a one in two risk of it happening, not nearly happening or might have happened, happening. And therefore, when you say one in 200, that sounds like, a low risk but interestingly if I was told I had a one in 200 chance of winning powerball on Thursday night I'd actually consider that quite likely yeah (laughs) Um, so when you're told statistics it's very difficult to get them in perspective but one way I would put this one in perspective is if if your one in 200 comes up it might be a decision that would leave you with a lot of regret. So at the very least, if you want to pursue a VBAC, and as I said, there's nothing unethical or unacceptable about having a VBAC, please do listen to the instructions you're given and have your baby in an appropriate setting because that will that will help um, relieve some of those risks. Mm. Great.
1: Right. Well, I think you've covered basically VBACs. every question that was asked that was about Vivax so that's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, moving on to fertility, is it harder to get pregnant after you've been on the oral contraceptive pill or maybe we'll just say on hormonal contraception um, for a long time?
2: Now that's a good question and a simple one to answer quickly. Quite simply, when you're on the pill, you're in control of your cycle. So if you took the pill as packaged, you're having a period every four weeks, and you know you're having your period. When you stop the pill, your body just goes back to whatever it would have been if you hadn't been on the pill. So the only way that the pill is compromising your knowledge about your fertility is it's not letting you know what your cycle really was. It's not making you have trouble when you stop it. It's just stopping you from knowing you're going to have trouble when you (laughs) stop it. So therefore... A lot of the commonest reason why women would have irregular, prolonged cycles and not be ovulating is polycystic ovaries. So they may have been put on the pill and have a regular cycle on the pill, but when they stop the pill, um, their prolonged, irregular, not ovulating cycles recommence. Well, that's not the pill that caused it, it's just they didn't know while they were on the
1: pill. And how long before wanting to conceive would you um, normally advise someone to come off the pill?
2: Well, I say ser- if you don't want to get pregnant, use alternative contraceptive as well as stopping the pill. Yeah. But if prior to starting the pill you had a history of irregular cycles or menstrual problems. I think it is worth, you know, stopping it a few months beforehand so you at least know what your cycle yeah. will be mm. doing. But do be careful because many women conceive in the very first cycle yes, after stopping
1: the pill. Yeah. And um I think there was oh and what medications can affect birth control from working or what? or what factors can affect
2: birth control? Look, really compliance is the number one factor uh, with every contraceptive. So the reason, for example, a Marina IUD has the lowest failure rate of any contraceptive available in Australia and possibly the world is because it's sitting in the uterus, it requires no user... um, uh, compliance at all you don't have to remember to take it if you go overseas into a different time zone it doesn't mind (laughs) you don't have to get prescriptions filled you don't vomit it up you don't have interaction so really it's compliance Um, and you do have to remember that every contraceptive and in Australia there's a fairly limited range of contraception every contraception has a failure rate yeah
0: but that is the lowest one
2: Mirena is the lowest, but the pill taken, you know, very regularly and very carefully has a very low um, uh, failure rate.
1: And we found out that Jade probably can't blame her antibiotics <laughs> on her first <laughs> <laughs> pregnancy, but that's okay. You keep You keep telling yourself that doll, that's all right. Um, how big of an influence um, do does lifestyle, for example, diet, exercise, alcohol, drugs um, have on your fertility? Yeah,
2: absolutely massive. And while we're all hearing in the media that the reason why women are having problems with their fertility now is because they're leaving having babies till later, yes, that is true, but what's being ignored is the massive influence on fertility of obesity and poor lifestyles. So in my IVF practice, it it is not uncommon when we're doing an IVF list for for basically six or seven patients in a row to be over 100 kilograms. And we know that if those women were in a healthy weight range, that they would probably be perfectly successful in conceiving naturally. But unfortunately, telling people to lose weight is one of the most unsuccessful pieces of advice given in medicine. So yeah, lifestyle is incredibly important. And I don't just mean that because it's part of my sort of mission statement as a doctor. It's part of, of, of what I'm, of my responsibility to all of my patients to encourage them to have a healthy lifestyle, whether they're trying to get pregnant or whether they are pregnant or for any reason that I'm seeing them, to have a healthy diet, to exercise, to be at a healthy weight. And um, smoking has a, a dreadfully detrimental effect on both male and and female fertility and a very significant increased risk of miscarriage and pregnancy complications. So, um, yeah, all of those factors are extremely important and and my encouragement is that doctors aren't there to criticise you for being overweight. We're just there to help you and encourage you because if you do lose weight, you will be more fertile.
0: And what age do you think is the max for having a
1: baby?
2: Well, look, in in IVF, we don't do any IVF using your own eggs beyond 45 because the pregnancy rate is zero. But we will do IVF embryo transfers either using donor eggs or eggs that were frozen in a woman. Prior to when she uh, embryos that were frozen for a woman prior to when she was forty five, right up to fifty one years of age, and as you've probably heard in the paper, like Romanian peasants giving birth to babies at like seventy, we're not allowed to do that in Australia, thank goodness. But there, if a woman has a uterus and can survive the pregnancy, she can probably have a baby. but before going ahead with advising a woman about her general well-being to have a pregnancy, particularly if it's one that's medically assisted, we want to make sure that um, that she doesn't have other general medical issues that could make pregnancy significantly more dangerous to her and her baby.
1: Um, natural ways um, to get your period back postpartum?
2: Um, as I said, you know, a healthy weight and diet and exercise. Um, but but other than and of course, stopping breastfeeding yeah. will help. But uh, really, nothing other than that. And if you're experiencing a long delay in your period, or, you, or or what we really mean is in your cycle returning, then you can seek advice and you can be given medication to help your cycle to restart.
1: Yeah. Um, And thoughts on tracking your cycle and your temperatures as a form of contraception?
2: Oh, well, I I actually thought I'd be asked that question in regard to conception rather than (laughs) contraception. (laughs) Well, I guess both. Um, And and I really feel that both are very poor on both grounds. Um, um, From a contraceptive point of view, obviously it is Strongly advocated by the Catholic Church, but if you are using mucus changes or cycle monitoring as a form of contraception, only do that if it's okay with you. If you do get pregnant, and with regard to getting pregnant, I've never been a fan of um, of doing temperature charts or doing L.H. surge detection kits or of doing um, mucus change to time intercourse. There's no question that the more often you have intercourse, the more likely you'll get pregnant. And if you have a regular cycle, it should be quite straightforward to be able to get the timing of that right. There is no benefit in saving up for a specific time in the cycle. I know when a man does a semen analysis, he's expected to abstain for four to five days, but that's only to standardize the result. It's not because it makes the semen analysis more fertile. Indeed, the more often um, you have intercourse, the better quality the sperm will be. Oh.
1: So basically, if you're trying to have a baby have sex every like you'd say have sex every day as possible and at
2: least every second day and if you're using lh surge detection kits like maybe baby you know rather than spending a hundred dollars in the at the chemist to get a packet of them when you're thinking of getting out of bed in the morning and weighing on the stick (laughs) it'd be better just to have intercourse because i can tell you which one of the two would be much more likely to help you get pregnant (laughs) well said. (laughs) Although I have heard of many pregnancies that were conceived off toilet seats.
1: Ew. Dirty. On to infer... Oh, no, wait, quick one with that. Um, Some people just wanted to know if there's any way that you can, um, conceiving naturally, make it more likely that you're going to have twins or a certain gender. Uh,
2: Well, with twins, no. Um, The twin rate is slightly higher as you get older because the FSH Levels are a bit higher when you're older or follicle stimulating hormone, but I don't suggest waiting till you get older to try <laughs> and have twins. Um, but no, there's no natural ways of of conceiving twins, and I always have a great laugh about um, these various methods for getting a boy or a girl. And when a man ejaculates, uh, one ejaculate can contain up to a billion sperm, which is which is a number really none of us can comprehend. That's a number completely, oh, unless you're unless sort you're of Steve, Stephen Hawkins or something. But a billion sperm is just a number, the, the inconceivable, well, inconceivable, but an unimaginable number. So that if you then had intercourse, say, three or four times over the fertile time in the cycle, you may be talking about multiple billion sperm being in the area. That's a gross which, thought, sorry. Of which 50% are X sperm and 50% are Y sperm. And then when the egg is in the fallopian tube quite a lot of sperm will reach the egg and attach to the egg and be in the region of the egg and for reasons that aren't quite what can' aren't quite understood one of them has a reaction with the egg and its DNA uh, is able to pass into the egg so for anyone to think that some sort of sex position or timing in their cycle or temperature or any other method could make a difference in which one sperm was chosen from billions would have an effect on the sex of the baby is just monumentally fanciful.
0: Well, there you go. There you go.
1: We can't help you. (laughs) Sorry.
2: My advice is if a patient has, say, three boys, I promise you'll have a girl. Why? Eventually.
0: <laughs> That's classic. <laughs> Just keep trying. <laughs> yeah. Now, we're on to infertility.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, at what age should women consider freezing their eggs?
2: Yeah, I'm seeing so many patients now with egg freezing. And to put that into context, um, egg freezing is an issue now because it's a relatively new te- technology, um, uh, successful egg freezing. And by egg freezing, we mean being able to collect eggs, freeze eggs, thaw eggs, fertilise them and create a healthy embryo. We're not just talking about freezing them. So the technology to, to, to freeze eggs, which is called vitrification, has only really been around in the last decade, whereas we've been able to freeze sperm for many, many decades. We've been able to um, freeze embryos for two or three decades, and we've now, uh, in the most recent decade, been able to freeze eggs. And the reason eggs are so difficult to freeze is because eggs are the biggest cell in the human body, and therefore when you freeze and thaw them, Icicles can form in the massive cytoplasm they have or fluid around the nucleus and that destroys the egg. If you imagine the size of an egg, it's like putting a spoon in the middle of an AFL football ground and the football ground is the egg and the spoon is the sperm. That makes sperm very easy to freeze. And with embryos... Basically
1: men are simple and women are complex. Absolutely.
2: And and we also can freeze embryos because as an embryo forms and is in its early cell phases, each cell division sort of engulfs some of the cytoplasm that's always already there. So each individual cell of the embryo is much smaller than the egg and that's why we were able to freeze embryos before we were able to freeze eggs. But getting back to the question... Um, I'm now seeing, as I said, a lot of people who want to freeze their eggs and the commonest indication for that consultation is that a woman comes to see me who's been in a recent long-term relationship that's broken up and she's now thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm in my 30s, I thought I had the partner that I was going to have my family with and now I'm going to start again so I think I'll freeze eggs. And there is no doubt that the earlier you freeze eggs, the higher the pregnancy rate will be in the future. Indeed, you're not just freezing the egg, you're freezing the pregnancy rate, the miscarriage rate and the Down syndrome rate. So if you come along at 40 and use an egg that you froze when you were 25, you'll have the success rate of a 25-year-old and the miscarriage rate of a 25 year old. So if you're thinking of freezing eggs, it's something to seriously think about and very sort of socially conscious corporations are now even helping staff members by helping pay for egg freezing and helping people with time off to have egg freezing as a way of encouraging encouraging them to be career minded, but not miss out on the future in the ability to have children And I will say there's also a tragic side to egg freezing. You know, we aren't just referred patients for what we would refer to as social egg freezing. We're also seeing patients for medical egg freezing and that might be tragic circumstances like a woman who hasn't had children who's about to embark on chemotherapy or radiotherapy or some sort of radical surgery which would affect their fertility in the future. So they wish to freeze eggs now so that they may access them in the future. And I think that can sometimes be a really good thing because it's a really positive um, affirmation that I'm freezing these eggs because I have a future yeah. and I'm going to recover and I'm going to have children mm-hmm. in the future. So, you know, we, we provide a service free of charge for those patients so that they can have access to what we call medical egg freezing.
1: And if it's not medical egg freezing, what are the approximate
2: costs? Probably between five and $7,000. Okay. The, the great question you'd ask, and it's a really interesting one, is how many eggs would I need to be freezing to give me a really good chance of getting pregnant in the future? And of course, there is no answer because when the eggs are thawed, we don't know how many will thaw, how many will fertilise, how many will become embryos and how many will become babies. But clearly, the more eggs you freeze, the better. But really, it's the more good quality eggs you freeze, the better, which goes back to how old you were when you froze them. And it sometimes upsets me when a woman comes to see me and she's like 43 and she's freezing eggs. And I have to explain to her that, look, really the likelihood that of putting you through this and you paying for this expensive intervention, the likelihood of you successfully achieving a pregnancy in the future is actually very small. And also counterintuitively, it's often the women who get a lot of eggs collected at an egg freezing cycle who go ahead and do another cycle, because they think, well, look, if I got 20 eggs from one cycle and froze them, geez, if I do a second cycle and I have 40 eggs, I've surely got to have a hell of a good chance in the future of having a pregnancy. Whereas if someone comes along and goes through all of that expense and and doing the cycle and only gets two or three eggs, they might think, well, look, is this really going to work for me anyway? So it's not; it doesn't always work out the way that you would originally think.
0: Um, when do you think... Enough tries of IVF um, is is enough. Yeah, is enough. And what's the next step?
2: Yeah, it's. I, I would like to think that my patients would confirm that when I genuinely think a patient shouldn't continue to pursue IVF, that I'm honest enough to say that to them and say, look, I, I really just don't believe this is going to work. Um, So each cycle gives you information about likelihood of success. So first of all, how old is the patient? How many eggs were collected? What was the apparent quality of those eggs? What was the first fertilisation rate? And then how many of those subsequent embryos grew through to what we call the blastocyst stage, so a day five embryo. So if it reaches the point in someone's IVF treatment where they're they're either getting none or maybe one embryo for transfer, and the signs are repeatedly uh, pessimistic, then it does reach a point where you need to say, look, I I, I really, of course this could, work by miracle, but I can't ethically feel comfortable to continue treating you with IVF given the amount of emotional and physical and financial toll that is taking on you. So yes, I have delivered babies to women who have had, you know, 30 or even 40 embryo transfers, but there does come a time when people need to reconsider their options. And in the case of repeated lack of success, um, the usually the next option to consider is donor eggs or donor embryos. And there are a number of pathways that that can be achieved. In Australia, you're not allowed to pay for someone to donate eggs, so it has to be totally altruistic. But there are a number of sort of um, websites that, Enable Women who are interested in donating eggs to register their interest or you may find a donor through a friend or relative. And then of course you can go overseas and the commonest places to go overseas are California, Hawaii and South Africa where people are allowed to be paid to donate eggs and therefore, of course, you'll be receiving eggs from an egg donor who may well be in her early 20s and therefore when patients go overseas for that treatment, they nearly always get pregnant because the success rates are so astronomically high when you're dealing with eggs from such young Mm. Do you think you should be able to
1: be paid to donate them in Australia? Or am I, I, I opening up a can of worms?
2: Well, look, I think that's a, a moral dilemma that should be you should feel comfortable to ask and we should all feel comfortable to discuss. Yeah. I mean, as a person who sits at a desk opposite people who are, who are, who are painfully desperate to conceive a pregnancy and who I would dearly love to help conceive a pregnancy, I, of course, believe that that sort of treatment should be accessible to them and... Um, Australia has a, a nasty habit of changing rules as we go along. So somebody donates what we call a gamete or the sperm or eggs and then a government 20 years later decides that even though you were told when you did the donation that that person wouldn't have access to your name or your medical history then all of a sudden they change the rules and um you know and won't have any access to perhaps claiming some stake in your estate or something like that so I think you'd find that people in Australia would be would be cautious about doing that, but it would make it much easier for people in Australia. The other one that of course is the can of worms that is actually the lid is being peeled gradually from at the moment is sex selection. So whether Mm. we should enable people to do sex selection and that can be divided into the category for any patient or only for a patient who's got a medical condition which is sex-related or only for patients who've had a certain number of one sex of a baby. So I will allow your listeners to have their own arguments about that <laughs> and I'll just do what the government lets do me do. Do they do that in China? Is
0: there um, like a limitation to no. or is it just children in fact? General?
2: Your listeners who've had a baby would almost certainly have had an NIPT test or fetal DNA test or Percept or Harmony, one of those tests that checks the DNA of a baby and you would have been offered the opportunity to find out the sex. In China, it is illegal to find out the sex of the baby at your Percept or NIPT test because they fear that women who are told that it is a female baby will abort the pregnancy. So quite the opposite, you you can't choose. In America, you
1: can do sex selection with your embryos though.
2: And with um, China, the one baby policy has actually been relaxed and people can have more than one baby now.
1: Very good to hear. And we'll quickly do a couple of postpartums and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. Is it unsafe to drink and smoke when you're breastfeeding?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean the, the I, I, with my patients I've always sort of been fairly um free spirited with regard to saying, look, you can have a drink during pregnancy and have a glass of wine on, on a special occasion, etc. But the NH and MRC, which is the um, you know, health regulatory body of Australia, has put out a statement saying that zero alcohol alcohol in pregnancy and breastfeeding is what should be recommended. And there is no question that anything that you smoke and anything that you drink and anything that you eat will end up in your bloodstream and end up in your breast milk. So I think common sense can prevail and that if you were at a wedding or at a special event and had a glass of champagne, you shouldn't feel guilty. But excessive drinking and certainly smoking while you're breastfeeding is What would happen
0: if you had a bottle of, you know, I don't know, wine, whatever, and you were smoking, what is the impact on your child?
2: Well, women who smoke, uh, their babies have a much higher rate of SIDS, they have a higher rate of childhood leukemias, and they have a higher rate of respiratory conditions such as asthma. That doesn't come in through the breast milk but the woman is smoking um, so there is smoke around the baby and the more than a hundred toxins that are within cigarettes will be going into their breast milk um, with drinking there will be a tiny alcohol content within that breast milk and I, I guess just as you probably wouldn't give a baby a sip of your glass of wine you wouldn't give them a sip of your glass of wine via the breast milk on a regular occasion.
1: Mm. And then, last one: um, how long um, postpartum does it generally take to regain most of your like pelvic floor function? So, when would be a point where you'd go, This is kind of
2: as good as I'm gonna get? <laughs> well, I don't think there's any cutoff point. I think I'll go back to one thing I said, and that is everyone in their DNA has their own level of elasticity of their tissues. Just as you see some people, they have skin where wounds heal really beautifully and other people, they're very prone to infections. Some people's skin is pale and some people's skin is olive or dark you know everyone their tissues has different recovery rates so it would depend partly on that person's own inherent stretchiness and elasticity it would depend on their delivery was it a difficult forceps delivery or a very straightforward delivery of a small baby and then of course people's dedication to their pelvic floor exercises certainly never underestimate the value of good pelvic physiotherapy I have always incorporated it in my practice and I'm a very strong advocate of it um, and so if you're doing pelvic floor exercises and uh, and doing your best with them you'll probably return to sort of 80 or 90 percent of what you're going to get to by about six months
0: yep awesome. And if you haven't been doing those and you would like to start,
2: never too late to start.
1: <laughs> there no, you go, I, I was sad. I never did them after coffee. Anyway, that's okay. I won't be jumping on a trampoline anytime soon. No, you won't. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Dad. Thank you. Dr. Simi.
2: If I come on again, I'll update you on how many followers I've got. I'm hoping I could crack the do one. You what, do you give a, a shout-out? I'm trying to crack the 160. Oh,
1: babe, you're going to crack oh, more yeah. than that. Go on. It's. I just want to make sure that the spelling's correct. It's at Timmy Chippen, which is T-I-M-M-Y-C-H-I-P-P-I-N, and we'll link it in the show notes.
2: And I will absolutely say that I've not come on this show in any way to criticise your obstetricians or your midwives or your birth helpers or doulas and I've not come here to try and preach propaganda or, and certainly not come in here to try and increase my practice in any way, shape or form. I'm just supporting Sophie in something that I feel passionate about and so does she and um, you know, I, I really hope that it can be helpful to someone listening.
1: Thank you. It was Thank very you. Insightful. and if he can gain a few Instagram followers along the way, yeah. so that he gets a couple more likes on his videos of Poppy and Sloane, yeah,
2: maybe a free BMW or <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> when we get tri- that then you trip to the Maldives. Malagy- <laughs> 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 Thank you Thank so you. much, and guys, if you enjoyed it. Um, let us know, let us know if you have any other questions, if you'd like Dr. Timmy to have an encore. Um, and, and yeah, thank you so much for listening. We know this was a long one, but um, we hope you got heaps out of it. Bye.
0: Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't,
1: good on you.